Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Alan Jones, Australia's leading voice. Well, good evening and thank you for being with us. This interest rate issue admits of several points. Firstly, it was always a mistake, forget the Reserve Bank, always a mistake to believe that money could be almost free. To be historically honest, interest rates today are still amazingly low compared to what many people viewing us tonight have paid in the not so recent past. So we need some perspective here. The lesson is, as I've always said, we have to be careful when we borrow to factor in increases in the cost of the money and then see whether, if those increases come to pass, would we still be able to afford the loan? The second point is not that the share market is a credible barometer, but the Australian share market's value surged by $81 billion yesterday, the best session in more than two years. And this is almost entirely due to the fact that the Reserve Bank didn't go stupid and actually slowed the pace of the interest rate increases so that interest rate sensitive stocks performed quite well. And it looks like the Reserve Bank won't increase interest rates as much as they already have. Mind you, savers have been getting virtually nothing for their money. So a rate increase is great for them, for those who save, not so flash for those who borrow. But you can't beat the big banks, can you? Only last week I told you that the big four announced cash profits of 28.4 billion. Good for shareholders not too flash for the depositor or the borrower. These profits indicate that the banks are not paying you much for your money if you're a depositor, but they're ready to lend it out at inflated rates. And clearly 28.4 billion is not enough because all the major banks passed the full interest rate hike onto customers immediately. The real worry in all of this is for those who can't afford a home. As I've said many times, if young people have a HEX debt, or today I think it's called HELP debt, higher education loan program, but if young people have a student debt and are paying rent and are looking to buy something, even for $500,000, they'll be asked to provide a deposit of at least $100,000. Where do they get that from? The answer is nowhere. This means there are an awful lot of people chasing rent. There's a massive shortage of social housing now, the Greens have a fair point when they argue that the government plans to spend $244 billion on stage three tax cuts, but $10 billion on housing, that is the Housing Australia Future Fund, and nothing for renters. So the rent reality is there are single mums living in their cars. More renters are facing eviction. Other Australians are skipping meals to pay for the rent. Which brings us back to the massive housing crisis. The stock isn't there to rent. 
That's why the price is so high for rent. But everywhere you turn, there is red and green tape and bureaucrats jamming up the system when reputable developers, often treated as if they're criminals, are ready to build but can't jump through the bureaucratic hoops. So there's another crisis for you of governments making, the housing crisis. Just on the environment, I think everybody loves Prince William, but in his first official engagement since the burial of Queen Elizabeth II last Monday week, Prince William, now the Prince of Wales, conceded that the fight against climate change wasn't an easy one, but we need to repair, restore and rejuvenate our planet. When this ideological nonsense has the endorsement of royalty, you can understand why young people view their future with alarm. And in world politics, I'll have something to say tomorrow night about Italy, but the polls said the Brazilian President Bolsonaro was for the high jump. Yet at the end of the first round of polling last weekend, the weekend just gone, there's not a lot in it. And it goes to a second vote on October 30 between Bolsonaro and the former president, Luis Inacio Lula da Silva, a former leftist president who conservatives see as part of the vast corruption scheme that helped rot Brazil's institutions. He got 47.9% of the vote, Bolsonaro 43.7, the runoff on October 30. Well, tonight I'll look in some depth at this real issue of justice. Does it exist in this country or is it merely a cliche? I'll also look at the transport mess in New South Wales, you won't believe it. I'll talk to Tim Smith again about what can only be described as a political mess in Victoria and to David Maddox in Britain, where they are saying, following on from what Jake told us last night, they're saying that Liz Truss, who has her big speech today, has, quote, 10 days to save her premiership. Stay with us. You're watching ADH. I'm Alan Jones. Someone has to say it, but it seems we are entering very deep water in relation to questions of innocence and justice. We carry on about behaviour in places like Russia and China, where we're described, or what are described as show trials, deny the fundamental principles of justice that we pretend to uphold. Pretend is the key word. Indeed, at the government level, where are these principles applied to Julian Assange? In spite of utterances by the new Prime Minister before the election, not a syllable has been uttered in defence of Julian Assange, against whom no charges have been laid, but he's locked up in an horrendous British prison. The Foreign Minister Penny Wong, who's doing an outstanding job in difficult circumstances, rightly has slammed the jailing of the Australian economist, Professor Sean Turnell in military-ruled Myanmar. Sean Turnell is Sydney-based, an economist, whose crime was that he was advising Aung San Suu Kyi, working tirelessly to strengthen Myanmar's economy. But Sean Turnell has now been sentenced to three years in prison. I'll have more to say about that later. The point I'm making is that we had better start at every level rethinking whether we believe in justice or not. Justice Lucy McCallum is now presiding over the trial of the man accused of raping Brittany Higgins. Prior to the trial commencing, Justice McCallum said, and I quote, what concerns me most is that the distinction between an allegation and a finding of guilt has been completely obliterated, unquote. We ought to be grateful that this concerns Justice McCallum. But who else does it concern? Where else do we see the distinction between an allegation and a finding of guilt completely obliterated? The media and every Tom, Dick and Harry has waded in the last fortnight through serious allegations made 
in a Hawthorne Football Club racism review about two remarkably successful coaches within the AFL, Alastair Clarkson and Chris Fagan. But the extraordinary part of this story is that aspects of this review have been leaked to sections of the media, of course the ABC, and Clarkson and Fagan have been paraded virtually as guilty parties. Is this the way it operates? Stick the name up in lights and the public almost certainly believe in their guilt. The fact that Clarkson and Fagan have denied the allegations is almost peripheral to the issue. In the compilation of this review, they were never interviewed, yet they were named in the review as perpetrators of abuse. They've not been part of any of the process. How can this be allowed? How should an ostensibly responsible media be allowed to behave in this way? Make no mistake, the reputation of these men has been damaged by leaking aspects of this review to the ABC. What is this, if not a show trial? Allegations are completely untested, and in the process of compiling the review, three men, Clarkson, Fagan and Jason Burt, were at no stage interviewed. How the hell does this constitute natural justice or due process? Surely if a review is to mean anything, it would involve compiling allegations of misconduct and seeking the views of those who are named as alleged perpetrators. And surely this process should apply before anything is made public. But of course, leak incriminating allegations and the media trial is on. Whether these men are innocent or guilty, the punishment has begun. Where racism occurs, of course it must be investigated and punished. But surely allegations must be tested. Or, as Janet Albrechtson has splendidly written, and I quote, each new show trial based on untested allegations encourages more of the same, entrenching a dreadful, almost daily cycle of reputational wreckage, of careers brought to an end and lives ruined, unquote. Where are the so-called civil liberties groups or human rights commissions protesting the fundamental rights of these men. We know where they are, silent. And we allow the media witch hunts to continue and seemingly care little about harming the innocent until proven guilty. Andrew Thorburn's had a distinguished and I believe an honourable corporate career. He's a former CEO of the National Australia Bank when the Royal Commission into Misconduct in the banking and superannuation industry gained momentum. He resigned his well-paid job. There were very serious allegations against NAB he said as the CEO, I understand accountability. Andrew Thorburn was announced on Monday as the new CEO of the Essendon Football Club to begin his job on November 1. He resigned a day later yesterday. He's chairman of the City on a Hill Church's Melbourne chapter. The church has a post on its website of a sermon condemning abortion as murder. Another sermon states that same-sex attraction is a sin. The Essendon Club told Andrew Thorburn that the church's views were contrary to the club's values and issued Andrew Thorburn with an ultimatum. You can't serve at the Essendon Football Club and as chairman of your church's Melbourne chapter, even though clearly these views were expressed long before Thur Thorburn became chairman. But he made what surely is a valid point, and I quote, not everyone in the church agrees with those views, but it's very important in society that those views can be expressed. Some of these views, he said, are offensive to people and upset people, and I really respect that, unquote. He said, look at my actions and look at my words as a leader and the organisations I have created to enable safe, diverse, inclusive workplaces, unquote.
but he's gone before he even began. Another one bites the dust. Another media trial. Can anyone argue that in relation to Hawthorne and now Essendon, the fundamental principles of justice haven't been just tossed aside and no one seems to care? Well, viewers to this program would know my views about the retiring Victorian MP for the state seat of Kew, Tim Smith. This is the fellow, just repeating, who made a grave error of judgment in October last year, drove while drunk, crashed into a fence, irresponsible behaviour, which he accepted. He's offered no excuses, but as I've told our viewers, it was the night that he heard that Jane Garrett, one of his closest friends, a former Labor minister, had breast cancer, which had spread throughout her body. Tim took off to see her. This was last October. Jane died in July at the age of 49. In an exhibition of appalling leadership, or lack of it, and profound cowardice in yielding to the then headline hunters, the so-called leader of the Victorian opposition, Matthew Guy, formerly a best friend to Tim Smith, Matthew Guy folded and got rid of Tim Smith for good. As I've said many times, this is the man the Victorian Liberals desperately need at this moment. The only bloke capable of taking bark of Daniel Andrews. Put bluntly, Tim Smith should be leading the Liberal Party, not leaving it. But the Andrews juggernaut goes on. Here is Daniel Andrews, the fellow who has presided over a government where 33 Victorians died after waiting too long for ambulances between December 2020 and May 2022. His government blamed the pandemic, but of course October 21 to March 2022 was hardly the high point of the pandemic. But Andrews didn't hold a press conference and the issue, confronted with a weak opposition, just goes away. Then there's the red shirts fiasco. Andrews was asked earlier this year whether he led a corrupt and unethical government in Victoria, to which he said, no, that's completely and utterly wrong. But during the 2014 election, the Andrews government used electorate office staff as political campaigners for the Labor Party, $400,000 of taxpayers' money. And for seven years, Daniel Andrews has dodged and deflected questions about the red shirts wrought. The Anti-Corruption Commission report into this fiasco suggested that the culture within the Victorian ALP was unethical and led to the misuse of public funds. So presumably a vote for Labor on November 26 endorses this stuff. The opposition leader doesn't seem to be able to prosecute the case. Then of course the Andrews government delivered to Victoria the world's longest COVID lockdown. 262 days spread across six periods in 19 months. Denial of freedom, people living like battery hens, kids denied schooling, Melbournians drained and dispirited, higher suicide rates, citizens under house arrest, Andrews pumping out messages with no accountability, not a piece of paper to justify what he was doing, hide behind unelected officials, but 99% of the cases were mild. And the Victorian opposition leader, Matthew Guy, still has no impact. Now I say all of this, because Andrew Thorburn, the former head of NAB, was appointed as the new CEO of Essendon to take over on November 1. It was announced on Monday. He resigned yesterday, Tuesday, because he's also chairman of the Melbourne chapter of the City on a Hill Church. Some may argue that Thorburn shouldn't have been appointed in the first place, given the problems revealed by the Royal Commission into misconduct in the banking, superannuation and financial services industry, that amongst other things, the Royal Commission found that the NAB was charging customers, including dead ones, more than $650 million in fees 
for no service. And of course, it was NAB where the CEO, Andrew Thorburn's chief of staff, defrauded the bank of $5 million. And the Royal Commission found it, quote, absolutely staggering that those frauds were not detected by some appropriate system of internal auditing, unquote. But that is not the issue here. Prior to Andrew Thorburn being the CEO, as I've said earlier tonight, one sermon was delivered within the church condemning abortion as murder, and another sermon talked about same-sex attraction as a sin. But who should wade into this? Daniel Andrews. Andrew Thorburn had no knowledge of this, that is, of those sermons, and as he said, quote, his personal Christian faith seems to be not tolerated or permitted in the public square, unquote. He was virtually told, apparently, resign from your role with the church or resign from Essendon. He said, quote, I was being required to compromise beyond a level that my conscience allowed, unquote. He made the point that not everyone in the church agrees with these views, articulated well before Mr. Thorburn became chair of the church. But he said, it is very important in a society that those views can be expressed. He said correctly that some of these views are offensive to people and upset people and, quote, I really respect that, unquote. Well, surely in a society that values freedom of speech, Thorburn is right. But Daniel Andrews, with the track record that I have just indicated to you, weighed in, quote, this grieves me greatly, not just for myself, but for society overall. I believe we are poorer for the loss of our great freedoms of thought, conscience and belief that made for a truly diverse, just and respectful community, unquote. Daniel Andrews made no mention of freedom of speech or the fact that in much that Daniel Andrews has done, justice and respect come along last. A Tim Smith is desperately needed in the Victorian opposition, but he's not there. He's been at the Conservative Party conference in Britain and he joins me. Tim, thank you for time, uh, joining us and thank you for your time. Australian viewers would be interested in your thoughts on Thorburn, Essendon and Daniel Andrews. Well, good evening, Alan. The simple fact is that um, there are only certain views that you're allowed to have in Australia in this day and age. And the fact that Andrew Thorburn has been essentially sacked for holding Christian values and Christian views just shows you that freedom of religion and indeed freedom of speech in our country is massively under threat. I don't agree with um, what some of this pastor said, but he's allowed to say it. Thorburn didn't say it. This is the whole point. This bloke didn't, Thorburn actually didn't say these things. So why did he get sacked by Essendon? The AFL's got a huge problem here. The AFL is going so woke that people are turning off. The AFL Grand Finals ratings were terrible. The, one of the reasons for that is that I think the punters are sick of the AFL and by extension the clubs, essentially engaging in social engineering, social lecturing, hectoring, and telling everyone how they should or shouldn't think. And that involves what we've just seen in the last 24 hours, where a bloke that who is involved in a Christian church after being duly appointed, and I think has a very good case for unfair dismissal, um, has basically been told that your religious faith is inconsistent with our club. Well, what if this bloke was a Muslim? What happens if this bloke was a, an Orthodox Jew? W would we be having this discussion? Um, 
I mean, this is uh, this is an incredibly slippery slope, Alan, that worries the hell out of me about I the future of our you. country. I agree with you. I mean, be- and then be- go on. Because, because essentially what it means is if you don't conform to the zeitgeist in uh, big business or big sport, Israel Folau being another really good example of this, then you're not welcome. You're not welcome. So this, this is cancel culture on steroids. Yes. But, I mean, then you've got this Daniel Andrews talking about freedoms. Freedoms. It was clever not to mention freedom of speech. Now, that's obviously a dead duck. That's out the window, freedom of speech. But mm-hmm. what authority does this bloke have to be throwing stones at Andrew Thorburn when 33 Victorians who died after waiting too long for ambulances between December 2020 and May 2022, Daniel Andrews blames the pandemic, $400,000 of taxpayers' money used during the 2014 election, using electorate office staff as political campaigners for the Labor Party. Party. The Victorian Anti-Corruption Commission says the culture within the Victorian ALP was unethical and led to the misuse of public funds, the world's longest COVID lockdowns, hiding behind unelected officials. And this bloke is lecturing to someone like Andrew Thorburn and the club as to what is right and wrong. I mean, is that the height of hypocrisy or not? Alan, I couldn't agree with you more. The, the height of hypocrisy, because this government by its own negligence, has killed 834 people, as you quite correctly observed. But do you think freedom of speech exists in the Victorian Labor Party? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Doesn't exist at all. You can't disagree with Daniel Andrews, otherwise you're told hit the road. You're told to hit the road. So this bloke is an authoritarian dictator within his own party. He's an authoritarian dictator within um, Victoria, as we've seen throughout COVID, where we were locked down for 263 days, uh, 8 p.m. curfew, a five-kilometre radius from our homes, people shot in the back by rubber with rubber bullets for daring to protest against it. I mean, this is the values of this Labor government. Yes, but but in the statement, but but, but, but but Tim, in the statement that he made about Thorburn, he said he we've got to defend freedom of thought, freedom of thought. How does that sit with a 28-year-old pregnant woman, Zoe Bula? handcuffed and arrested in her home in her pyjamas in September 2020 in Ballarat, pregnant in front of her two young children, just because she created a Facebook post urging people to protest against the draconian lockdowns in Melbourne. No freedom of thought available to her. So any freedom of thought if you agree with Daniel Andrews, only freedom of thought if you, if you agree with the blob, the zeitgeist those that seem to be able to tell the rest of us in Melbourne what we can and can't think. And that's where um, Melbourne is heading, and this is where I fear Australia is definitely, heading. Definitely. And we need strong voices. We need strong voices to push back on this yeah. because this is fundamental to our democracy. It's fundamental to our way of life. That if people can't express their own religious faith, if people can't express their own personal views about the world uh, that is entirely separate to their uh, behaviour and indeed their professional conduct at work, um, then uh, I think that sets an exceptionally dangerous precedent for all of us in our professional lives going forwards. I mean, you're 100% correct. That's why I'm talking to you and we'll keep talking to you because you make sense to a lot of people out there. This Andrew Thorburn has been a Christian for 20 years. I'm just saying to our viewers, he said he didn't agree with all statements made by the church that he runs, but he said Australia has a long tradition of diversity and religious freedom and, quote, we must, that must include preserving space for religious people to be able to express religious beliefs. 
I mean, that's what we're hoping we've got in Australia. But sadly, we haven't. Thorburn's being punished by the Essendon Club and condemned by Daniel Andrews for things that he didn't say and, in fact, didn't know had been said. And uh, had this bloke been, say, for example, the chairman of a mosque or a synagogue, do you think we'd be having this conversation? Absolutely Absolutely not. Absolutely. I'll tell you why. Because because at the first whiff of being accused of, of Islamophobia, this would this would this would have stopped. Yeah, I mean, but it's, you, it's you're right. It's quite it's quite, it's quite acceptable oh, yeah. in 2022. I know to kick the hell out of a Christian. Yes, I'm I'm not personally. I'm a very Alan. I'm a very bad Anglican. <laughs> I, I'm a I, I a very bad Anglican, mate. As you all know, everyone knows about my failings. Um, so I'm not I'm not a man of faith. I respect faith. I respect people of faith. And but it, you know you're allowed. It goes back to that to this awful cancel culture Absolutely. that is killing freedom of speech, which Absolutely. is actually by extension killing our democracy. Yes, and I hate I, it. But the I hypocrisy of this bloke. Here's a bloke. Here's a bloke preaching about his objection in relation to the sermons. Quote to that kind of intolerance, and then practices appalling intolerance towards Andrew Thorburn. Tim, we'll leave it there. You've done a brilliant job. We need you. That's why we're going to keep talking to you. And we'll see you next Wednesday night. Thanks, Alan. There he is, Tim Smith. How good's that bloke? But there you are, the Liberal Party. They run him out. This is a bloke that should be leading the Liberal Party, not leaving it. Tim Smith. Elections not far off for both Victoria and New South Wales. Where Victoria differs from New South Wales is that for all his weaknesses, policy failures and cover-ups, Daniel Andrews seems headed for victory, primarily because the Victorian opposition is bordering on useless. In New South Wales, the position for the Liberal National Party and that government there borders on the diabolical. The opposition leader, Chris Munns, is a formidable figure of similar ilk to the man who wiped the floor with the Liberal Party in South Australia. And Chris Minns has a strong team supporting him. The first role of a leader is to keep the troops together. In New South Wales, we have minister after minister saying they won't contest the next election. The number to date is eight Liberal or National MPs. Then there are policy issues. For a moment, forget the energy farce. Legislation for 100% renewables by 2030. This is demented stuff. And of course, that creates massively high energy prices with awful cost of living consequences. This is a common sense program here. I say things as they are, not as some would like them to be. Transport is going to be a massive handbrake on the Perrottet government. All politics is local. In Sydney, the trams that run between Central Station and Dulwich Hill were pulled from service almost a year ago after they were found to have significant defects. The government promised that all would be fixed by the October long weekend, which has come and gone. The Spanish manufacturer said in July it would be, quote, a couple of months maximum before the trams return to service, unquote, still waiting. Then we have the Spanish-built passenger trains. The delivery of these Spanish-built passenger trains is running more than three years late. An argument with the state government over design changes. That's design changes to the carriages. It's a $2.6 billion project, so passengers are stuck with trains that are decades old, which may well lead to unreliable services and, of course, higher maintenance costs. But then we have the doozy of them all, the Korean-built intercity trains. They were supposed to have entered passenger service in 2019. They're stuck in Central Coast storage 
at a cost to the taxpayer of $30 million a month. The fleet is the subject of a long-running dispute between the government and the rail union. On this issue, I think the unions are behaving very irresponsibly, but it's government's job to resolve these issues. Politically, the public are angry. Labor don't have a clean slate in all of this. Way back in 2005, they allowed in government as little as 20% of local content in the manufacturing of new train carriages. As the Sydney Morning Herald has rightly argued, quote, at the time, the Australian Manufacturing Workers Union, AMWU, accused the Labor government of betraying the entire manufacturing sector by backing up to 80% overseas content in the new carriages, unquote. So both parties have little to crow about. The Perrottet government, on the other hand, is meant to deliver the transport product. We now see that the overseas product, in terms of delivery, is a dud. But the manufacturing horse has bolted. Establishing a viable manufacturing industry would be a too costly proposition, at least in the short term. So the voter in New South Wales is left with the worst of both worlds. Overseas procurement has plainly failed, but there's no alternative. As with too much today, transport manufacturing has been outsourced overseas. The position with ferries is no different. New ferries on the Manly Circular Quay route had to be withdrawn last month, steering faults. The Rivercat ferries on the Parramatta River arrived from Indonesia several years ago. They've been dogged by problems. It is without argument a massive bungling of procurement and delivery. It's hard to imagine that this transport problem won't be at the forefront of New South Wales voters' minds when they go to the polls next March. This is the burden that must be borne when you're in government. The buck stops with you. But with one poll suggesting support for the Perrottet government at 30%, it's valid to argue the New South Wales government is already paying a high political price for policy failures. It is hard to describe the political situation in Britain that Jake Thrupp addressed last night on this program. Some are saying that the Conservative government has come perilously close to another Lehman Brothers moment, the infamous climax of the 2008 subprime mortgage crisis. The Bank of England hit full-scale crisis mode with a dramatic intervention as it attempted to calm spooked markets. The abolition of the 45% additional income tax or high income tax rate for earnings of more than £150,000 was amongst the most controversial moves because borrowed billions would have been needed to pay for it. But then Michael Gove and others, but Gove highly intelligent and very articulate, forced an immediate U-turn on Liz Truss. Everything's happening there today. David Maddox is our in-touch political editor of Express Online. You can read him and be right up to date at express.co.uk, as I've told you. This bloke has forgotten more than most of them over there know. David Maddox knows the Conservative Party inside out and argues that Liz Truss, in the job for less than a month, is fighting for her political life. David Maddox joins us. David, thank you for your time. Look, I suppose the first point is, well, with this rebellion in the Tory party, forget everything else, would she get this mini budget through the parliament? Well, it's it's beginning to look like touch and go on it. Um, you, you referenced the 45p top rate there. She 
panicked and dropped that um, on uh, Monday morning yeah. in the hope that that would get it through. But now she's facing an even bigger uh, rebellion on welfare cuts and benefits cuts. And uh, even even one of her own cabinet ministers spoke out against that yesterday. Mm. And uh, it looks like, I mean, it, you know, you actually wonder if even her own ministers would vote for it at the moment. It's, uh, yes. you know, I've, I've never seen a situation where a prime minister has so dramatically lost control. And, you know, I've seen some yes, bad well, situations I, yeah, in the I, last... We've never seen this in our lifetime, quite frankly. There's nothing like this in our lifetime, what we're confronting now. These are historic times. I mean, the issue here mm. is the spike in Britain's debt and the market's fear for the state of the British economy. Will Truss, she, she addresses the conference today, and I'll come to that in a moment, but will Truss win the battle of placing ideology over economics? Now, it's an interesting debate here because uh, I, I was at dinner on Sunday night at the party conference with Patrick Minford, who is the economist uh, behind the, what we're calling trustonomics. Um, he was Margaret Thatcher's favourite economist back in the uh, 1980s. Now, he was absolutely convinced and is convinced that um, trust is doing the right thing, as uh, people like John Redwood as well, who are kind of big thinkers in the Conservative Party, that actually, essentially, the growth that you create will far outstrip uh, the... Uh, um, uh, the the debt that you create yeah, the at the cost, same time the because cost. of these tax cuts, yeah. and uh, so you know their point, their argument is that this isn't ideology, that this is this is actually economics. But what we've discovered in the Conservative Party, literally overnight, is uh, two versions of conservative economics. One mm. you very articulated very well. They have a prudence one of bringing down debt and controlling the budget. Um, which actually at the same dinner, an old friend of yours, Alexander Downer, was yeah. arguing very strongly yeah. for. And, uh, uh, you know, and this, uh, this more, uh, <laughs> what can I say, uh, some might say cowboy economics mm. of going out there, cutting tax and uh, borrowing some money to fund but it. But see, there's also, the see there's also the politics of this, isn't there? I mean, if you're just releasing all that money back into the economy, and that creates inflationary pressures, mm. then interest rates climb. And you've got millions of Britons who, as I speak to you tonight, are really worried about their mortgages being at risk. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, the, the fact is that we've had interest rates, base rate interest rates at 0.5% now for quite some time. You know, you're speaking to a man here who holds two mortgages at the moment. So, you know, I'm feeling a little bit nervous on this. Uh, if we see a rise up to 5% even, people are going to lose yep. their homes. Yep. Um, I mean, I, I remember back in the 80s, we were talking about 15% of mm. this, but those are different times. You know, people are going to lose their homes. They're over-leveraged. The, the property market here is already crazy. Mm. It takes an enormous proportion of people's yes, uh, assets and it earnings. Does. So, um, you know... There's not just, much. There's not much flexibility. Just, for people. just in, and, and the key thing. Sorry, the key thing on this is that these are middle class voters. If, if people lose their homes, that's conservative voters oh, going yeah. away from a conservative. Oh yes, no doubt. No doubt. There are yeah. millions of Britons nervous about what this will mean to their mortgage, and it may reach a point where they can't yeah. afford to pay it. Now, then go into the House of Commons. I mean, 
Is it true? It seems to me the strategies here have just all been wrong. I mean, is it true that MPs knew little about the backdown from the 45p rate? And of course, she was going to shift it to 40 cents, uh, 40 pence in the in the pound. And then she was persuaded by Michael Gove and others to shift it back, make a U-turn to Ford, believe it at 45p. But I mean, what chance do you have when MPs say, well, I knew nothing about this until it was announced? I mean, there were people out there defending the policy and then suddenly are made to look idiots because they've done a U-turn on the policy. I mean, I understand there was a text message two minutes before the Chancellor announced mm. the U-turn. Um, how on earth does that persuade people to support the leader? Well, this is this is the problem, you know, and it was really revealed that two minutes uh, story because these are ministers, senior ministers, cabinet yes. ministers who were kept, first kept in the dark about the policy in the first place before it was announced uh, and then kept in the dark about the U-turn. And, uh, you know, I, I was literally after, my, you know, kind of 10 minutes after the U-turn was announced, I was walking to the conference centre with, I can't name it, a very senior minister in the cabinet. And, you know, he was absolutely flummoxed. He said, yeah, I got a, I got a text two minutes before the announcement telling me it was going to happen. Yes. And uh, he, he was privately wondering whether the PM could survive. I mean, yeah. it's just... Well, then you've I got, mean, you're, talking the, about, the you're, you're talking about a surviving, right? Now, you've got Michael Gove, very articulate, very knowledgeable, very influential, along, and you've written this, mm. along with Rishi Sunak and Grant Shapps, who's a former mm. cabinet minister, working their way around colleagues at this conference that you're at mm. and Jake's there, undermining the prime minister's position. Yes. And, and, and the problem is, you know, you could argue that, announcing the 45p rate abolition without doing the proper groundwork and arguments and laying the ground for it was a mistake. But it's an even bigger mistake to then double back on it and then, then you turn yeah. on it. Yes. And the problem was by doing that, she signalled to Michael Gove, and he's a really good operator, really effective operator, she signalled to Michael Gove and others that if they just push a bit, she yeah, will cave. Yeah. She'll buckle. And She'll that buckle. Then triggered, yeah, that I mean, it's unbelievable. All sorts of chaos. Uh, yeah. yeah, all sorts of chaos. Yes. Yesterday, I yesterday, mean, I've never seen anything like it. No, no, no. Know. No, you haven't. This is historic times. I mean, to our viewers, 11 days after she announced that she was cutting the top rate from 45 pence in the pound to 40, 11 days after that, it was suddenly abolished. Uh, David, yeah. that is a humiliation, surely. Does it mean it is. That, that Liz Truss, I mean, she's got to address the conference today. God knows how she does it with the polls absolutely in a mess. She's 25 points behind in the latest poll. But yeah. how, does she, how does she address the conference when this humiliating backdown means that she really has lost control? Has she? She has lost control. She's totally lost control. And I, I have to say, when I saw the announcement on Monday morning, I said to my colleagues, that's it, it's curtains. Because uh, for exactly what I've just said, uh, she's just signalled to the people on her back benches that they can dictate her policy yes. for her. And that, that she has no authority. If she loses, I, I, I was being told yesterday, if she loses on one more big policy area, and this issue on welfare cuts is, is the next one, 
then you know it's it's hard to see how she can possibly yep. govern. Yep. And, uh, you know, it's a yep. famous year in the kind of fall of the Roman Empire, isn't it? A year yes. of four emperors yes. or something like that. Yes. And, uh, they, you know, they, they kind of stabbed emperor after emperor in the back. We're mm. kind of in this position with a Conservative Party and with the collapse of a Conservative mm. Party mm. at the moment. And this is well, see, stuff. Da- just to our you know, viewers. The world's oldest political party, you know. J- David just made a point there yeah. about welfare cuts. What she was doing was actually cutting back welfare entitlements ostensibly to pay for Mm. the tax cuts. Now, David, look, you've got your ear to the ground. Are you saying that the Conservative Party, as you speak to me tonight, and Tory MPs are considering who could replace her and that MPs openly are claiming she's had 10 days to save the Premiership? Now, I understand that talking about Ben Wallace, who's the Secretary of State for Defence, he's 52, a military man, went to Sandhurst, been in the Parliament 17 years, no oil painting, I might add, a former captain in the British Army, Mm. touted as a leader to replace Boris Johnson, but didn't run because he was a supporter of Johnson. Are they talking about an emergency Prime Minister? They are, they are, and I, I, I broke this story last night. And uh, he's top of a short list of three. I think he's the only realistic prospect. The other two were Penny Mordaunt and Rishi Sunak, who, of course, have been rejected in one way or the other. By and the Boris party. Johnson? But what they want, what, well, it's too soon. He's only been out a few weeks. I mean, they can't just reinstate him, even his closest But there was none of this mess when Boris was there, soon. was there, apart from all this, you know, these parties well, at Downing was, Street? <laughs> I mean, she, she has managed to amazingly make it even worse than the, uh, the chaos around Partygate. But it's, um, it, it, I mean, the thing about Ben Wallace is that he's solid, a solid character. He's a proper conservative. He's liked on both wings of a party. He's a unity figure. And if they replace Liz Truss, the, the argument oh, is they cannot have another leadership election. We cannot spend weeks and weeks again. So it's got to be a coronation. What? It's got to be somebody in the middle. This is unbelievable. You know? Unbelievable. It's unbelievable what you've just said. It's unbelievable what you've just said. The woman's been there. The woman's been there barely a month. Yeah. And if they replace, lose trust. Just before you go. So today it's make or mm. break day. She is addressing, it's about half past seven in the morning there uh, in Britain. So lose trust mm. in a couple of hours will be addressing the conference, a make or break speech. How is she going to survive? How does she explain why she U-turned on the 45P? How does she address the collapse in the polls? And what could she possibly say to unify a totally dispirited Conservative Party? Well, the first question actually will be whether there'll be anybody in the hall, because you'll, you'll notice I'm doing this from my home, my my study again at home, because I had to get the train last night because we've got a train strike for the rest of the week, which means most people who haven't got their own form of transport will be stuck in Birmingham. Uh, so, uh, you know, an awful lot of the train I was on last night was like it was like the, you know, a kind of retreat from Singapore or something <laughs> like that. It was, uh, you know, it was absolutely packed full of people. Right. But I mean, it's so uh, I mean. Yeah, she she's got to um, she's really got to lay out her vision. She's got to stick with her principles. She's got to explain her principles. She's got to show that it's more than ideology, as yeah. you were saying earlier. Yeah. And, uh, and and she's somehow got to lift the spirits yeah. and and talk a bit about herself. But the problem is this: uh, uh, Liz Truss 
is is infamously bad at speeches. There's, uh, I mean, if people Google Liz Trust speech or YouTube it on Liz Trust speech, there's one from a few years ago when she was the Environment Secretary, where you know it, it's a famous line. It's a disgrace. And it's just, uh, it, it, it's it's kind of comedy classic, right. you know. And it's. Um, she, she's, she's somehow got to get it together, All otherwise right. it's just done. Okay. All right, well, let's, let's leave it there. Let's leave it there. One thing's for sure, you and I will have plenty to talk about next week. All right, we'll see we what sure happens. Will. A lot will happen in the next 24 hours, David. Great to talk to you. There is David Maddox. We've never seen anything like this, never seen anything like this in the Conservative Party in Britain ever. You can read David at express.co.uk. Please allow me to go again, but am I the only person who wonders what direction this country is taking? I mentioned earlier tonight this issue of innocence and justice, that we condemn the so-called show trials of Russia and China, and we pretend to uphold fundamental principles of justice and human rights. Simply put, we don't. For a start, real justice is only for the rich, but don't start me on that. Where is justice in relation to Julian Assange? locked up for years without any charges laid, an Australian. I alluded earlier tonight to true justice hoisted out the window in the latest media pylon at the Hawthorne and Essendon football clubs. It's most probably an appropriate time, therefore, to voice very real concerns about the fate of the Australian economist, Professor Sean Turnell. Or should we worry about the fate of justice itself? Professor Turnell has been sentenced to three years jail in a Myanmar jail for allegedly, that used to be Burma, for allegedly violating the country's official State Secrets Act. His crime seems to have been he was merely working in Myanmar as an advisor to the former leader Aung San Suu Kyi, but was arrested in February last year when the country's military seized power in a coup against the nation's leader, overwhelmingly elected in a democratically run election. Professor Turnell is 58. He's been in prison ever since, February last year. The charge, violating the country's official state secrets act, whatever that might mean. His trial was held behind closed doors in a military court in Myanmar's capital. Australian officials and the media were banned from the courtroom. Lawyers were prevented from speaking publicly. Sean Turnell, Professor Turnell, is a pretty ordinary Australian, an economist, who believes in good things. He has a wife, a daughter, and an 85-year-old father. But now Professor Sean Turnell has been convicted and sentenced. His trumped-up crime, well, firstly, a great supporter of Myanmar for over 20 years and supporter of democracy, who's worked tirelessly to strengthen Myanmar's economy. He has already been in prison for almost two-thirds of this sentence. At the time of his arrest, five days after the military takeover, he was confronted by security forces at his hotel in Yangon, the country's biggest city, while waiting for a car to take him to the city's international airport. He was actually back in Myanmar from Australia to take up a new position as a special consultant to Suu Kyi less than a month before he was detained. According to local media reports, he was accused of having classified documents in his possession. He told the court they were not classified, they were simply his economic advice to a civilian government. Suu Kyi was also sentenced to three years jail for violating the official State Secrets Act, but she has already been sentenced to 17 years jail for other offences. 
the so-called free world does nothing. Like Julian Assange, Professor Turnell has been held in the country's notorious Insign prison in Yangon before being relocated to a special military court inside a prison compound in the capital. We have any number of international bodies from the United Nations down The West pretends to hold dear the values of trial by jury, the rule of law, the presumption of innocence. But are these just cliches? Here's a man, an Australian, convicted after a trial in closed court without proper access to legal counsel. Can someone in the Albanese Albanese government tell us what's being done to pressure Myanmar's junta to immediately release Professor Turnell and send him home? It's not surprising that Professor Tim Harcourt a professor at the University of Technology in Sydney, says he's known Sean Turnell for 40 years. Quote, he's a great economist, a nice bloke, and a great human being. His main cause in life is to reduce poverty around the world, and he's developed a particular expertise in Myanmar. Unquote. Professor Harcourt added that he believed Professor Turnell had been detained on trumped-up charges. How strong is the world order in defence of these values? when the Cambodian Prime Minister, who is the ASEAN Chair, and the UN Special Envoy in Myanmar both make appeals to this junta leader at the request of the Australian Government, and nothing happens. Elaine Pearson is the Asia Director at Human Rights Watch. She correctly says that the Myanmar junta will really stop at nothing, and quote, it's now time to turn up the heat on the military junta, and that means employing targeting sanctions, unquote. Australia's Chargé d'Affaires and consulate officials in Myanmar, according to Foreign Minister Penny Wong, quote, made every effort to attend the verdict, but were denied access to the court, unquote. Minister Wong has argued that targeted economic sanctions are under active consideration. But according to the Assistance Association for Political Prisoners, since the military coup in Myanmar, formerly Burma, More than 2,300 people have been killed by the junta. More than 15,000 have been arrested and more than 1.3 million people have been displaced. 28,000 homes have been destroyed and villages have been burnt. What does the so-called free world do? You know the answer? Nothing. As a measure of the man, the day after the military takeover, Professor Turnell posted a message on Twitter which said, safe for now, but heartbroken for what all this means for the people of Myanmar, the bravest, kindest people I know. They deserve so much better, unquote. For that, he finishes up in jail, and the free world would have us believe they are impotent to do anything about it. This is not the world as we would want it to be. Too often on critical matters like this of individual justice, we speak with very soft voices, if we even speak at all. Before we go tonight, in his prophetic novel, 1984, George Orwell wrote, the past was erased, the erasure was forgotten, the lie became truth, unquote. Unfortunately, Orwell's statement is now becoming fact. Last week, Melissa Fleming, the Undersecretary for Global Communications at the United Nations, told the World Economic Forum that, and I quote, we partnered with Google. For example, she said, If you Google climate change, you will at the top of your search, you'll get all kinds of UN resources. We started this partnership when we were shocked to see that when we Googled climate change, we were getting incredibly distorted information right at the top. 
So we're becoming much more proactive. We own the science and we think that the world should know it and the platforms themselves also. This is scary stuff, isn't it? Here we have big tech and big global government working in cahoots. They don't want you to see views that counter the theory of human-induced climate change. They're doing this without the consent of the people who'll be affected by climate change alarmism. The worst part is, it looks like the globalists, Marxists and climate hysterics have been up to this stuff for years. Just ask the Prime Minister of New Zealand, Jacinda Ardern. I hope New Zealanders will wake up and get rid of her in a hurry. Recently, Ardern said, you can trust us as a source of that information. You can also trust the Director General of Health and the Ministry of Health. Otherwise, dismiss anything else. We will continue to be your single source of truth. Who the hell does this woman think she is? She wasn't mincing her words. Her speech, of course, to the United Nations last week demonstrated my point. Ardern said, quote, the face of war has changed and with that, the weapons used. A bullet takes a life. A bomb takes out a whole village. A lie online or from a podium does not. But what if that lie told repeatedly and across many platforms prompts, inspires or motivates others to take up arms, to threaten the security of others, to turn a blind eye to atrocities, unquote. Well, here's where it gets interesting. In her list of those who are supposedly using the internet to lie and threaten the security of others are those, quote, who do not believe climate change exists. It also includes those who subject people to, quote, hateful and dangerous rhetoric and ideology. She concludes, there is cause for optimism because for every new weapon we face, there's a new tool to overcome it. In other words, Ardern wants to censor the free speech of those who question man-made climate change and so-called progressive political ideologies on the internet. That should be regressive because those who call themselves progressive espouse anything but progress. But Ardern is working with her mates in big tech and the United Nations to get the job done. Shut up those who disagree. Make of that what you will, but we're gonna to have to keep up the fight. I doubt Ardern has read anything, just repeating rhetoric from the usual left-wing bureaucracy. Well, that's it from me tonight. Thank you for your company. Fred Paul is up next. I'll see you tomorrow night at eight o'clock. You're watching ADH. I'm Alan Jones. Good night.